You're listening to an amazing podcast from an amazing podcast company. episode is brought to you by Youngstown Tile. For spectacular flooring, go bold, go local, go Youngstown Tile. And by River Rock at the Amp. Saturdays in the summertime, there's no other place to be than at the Amp in Warren. And before you go, stop by the Sunrise Inn for the best food in Warren. And by Rick Perillo, author of the new true crime thriller, There's More Bodies Out There. Available now on rickperillo.com. Welcome to the Vice Squad Pod. I'm your host, Vince Greary. Mahoning Valley Mob 101, written by Rick Perello for the Vice Squad Pod. Mention the mafia and many people think of New York City, Chicago, and Las Vegas. But in the mid-20th century, two dozen major U.S. cities were home base to so-called crime families. They were started by Italian immigrants who brought to the U.S. in the late 1800s and early 1900s the philosophy of the Sicilian Mafia a secret and powerful organized crime network. To become a fully inducted or made mafia member, one had to swear allegiance to the crime family through a blood oath. Disloyalty to the rules could be punishable by death. The American version, known by many as La Cosa Nostra, this thing of ours in Italian, was closely allied with powerful racketeers, many of whom were Jewish, but criminals of every ethnicity were part of the network. Organized crime works on the fundamental business principle of supply and demand. When in the 1920s, the 18th Amendment outlawed alcohol, a large percentage of people were determined to continue social and religious consumption. By serving this demand, La Cosa Nostra and their criminal partners loaded their pockets with cash and gained influence. What emerged was a national crime syndicate with international connections. In those early years, the mafia families in Cleveland, Ohio, and 150 miles southeast in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, emerged as prominent organizations. Halfway between these two cities is an area once considered among the most mobbed up regions of the United States, Ohio's Mahoning Valley, anchored by the cities of Youngstown and Warren. The area became a haven for organized crime. Set along a stretch of the Mahoning River, the area flourished with steel mills and other manufacturing. But in the 1960s and 1970s, the economy soured with the pressure of foreign competition and automation. The mob's means of control included bribery of public officials, intimidation, and violence, even murder. Mahoning Valley's working-class population provided plenty of customers for the mob's services of drinking, prostitution, and gambling, vices that many citizens felt should not be outlawed. Due to the region's patchwork of local subdivisions, Ohio has no state police force, there was little coordination among local law enforcement agencies, and with the mob's ready supply of cash, it wasn't difficult for ambitious racketeers to find village 
and township politicians or police officials willing to pull the reins on their cops. Gambling has been a mainstay for organized crime. In many U.S. cities, the numbers racket gained popularity in the 1920s. This illegal lottery was a precursor to legalize state lotteries a half century later. In the Mahoning Valley, the numbers game was called the bug. Other gambling included sports betting and even casinos. One of the most notorious was the Jungle Inn in Trumbull County. This 1940s gambling den was insulated from local law enforcement by its location within the tiny village of Hall's Corners. Village officials were closely tied to the men who operated the place, like racketeer brothers John and Mike Farr. The mayor of Hall's Corners even worked at the Jungle Inn, the phone number for which was in his name. The Jungle Inn was among a string of Ohio casinos run by a network of mobsters, many of whom were from Cleveland, some who had figured notably in the development of Las Vegas. Their operatives boldly defied law enforcement efforts to shut them down. The Jungle Inn didn't have the glamour of the Flamingo in Vegas, but it did offer its eager and loyal customers slot machines, craps, roulette, and blackjack. An armed guard protected the joint from robbers and from the police. It took the personal involvement of Ohio Governor Frank Lausch to finally shutter the jungle in. By that time, the mob had a firm grip on Youngstown, Warren, and the rest of the Mahoning Valley. The local racketeers had close ties to the crime families in Cleveland, Pittsburgh, and beyond. They included two sets of brothers, the Carabias and the Naples, and other men with colorful nicknames like Fats Alio and Moosey Caputo. Another, Jack White Licavoli, would eventually become head of the Cleveland Mafia. In the late 1950s and early 1960s, battles broke out in the Mahoning County underworld for control of the numbers racket, sports betting, and vending machine routes. Cigarette and candy vending machines and pinball machines, which generated piles of coins, were easy targets for skimming. It was a tactic for stealing off the top, skim, from business receipts and to reduce the income amount reported for tax purposes. According to the FBI, part of the Pittsburgh-Cleveland conflict in Youngstown began when mob lieutenant Frank Brancato forced the Youngstown vending machine operator to cut the Cleveland family in for one-third of his profits. To ensure continued profits, Brancato had enforcers bring him new customers. When the man's competitors became resentful, bombings and shootings followed. In 1960, Sandy Naples was knocking on the door of his girlfriend's house in Youngstown when gunmen in a car stopped and fired shotgun blasts. Though mortally wounded, he pulled his own pistol and fired back. When his girlfriend left the safety of her house to aid Naples, she too was killed in the hail of gunfire. A year later, Mike Farah was in the yard of his Warren home, practicing his golf swing, when passing gunmen shot him. He died at the hospital. Several weeks later, Rackets Kingpin Vincent De Niro was in Youngstown's uptown neighborhood when he turned the ignition of his car and died instantly in a blast. The case of Charlie Cavallaro, known as Cadillac Charlie, was a tragic example of a key problem with the use of bombs innocent victims. Cavallaro, a mob-connected gambling figure, 
was getting into his car along with his two sons when a bomb detonated. It was a low point and drew the ire of even those citizens who otherwise tolerated the mob as seemly indigenous to the region. There were so many bombings and so much political corruption that the Mahoning Valley was dubbed Crime Town USA by the Saturday Evening Post, and car bombings became known as Youngstown Tunips. Governor Michael DeSalle called the Cavallero incident, quote, a symptom of conditions that have lasted too long in the Youngstown area and that should not be allowed to continue, end quote. State and federal law enforcement agencies pledged their assistance. In September 1963, mob associate and arsonist Dominic Moyo was shot in the head and his body stuffed in the trunk of his car, which was set alight. The FBI thought his murder was connected to the Cavallero bombing. They theorized that whoever ordered Cadillac Charlie's murder was angered by the assassin's bungling, which resulted in the death of Cavallero's 11-year-old son and serious injury to the other, who was 12. The FBI also believed Moya was connected to the 1962 bombing death of Billy Naples, Sandy's brother. With so much attention from law enforcement and the newspapers and citizens who were fed up with gangland violence, the mob bosses knew they had to make a change to reduce the heat. So they called a truce and agreed on territorial boundaries. Youngstown and most of Mahoning County would be Pittsburgh territory under the supervision of Vincenzo Prado. Two neighboring counties and part of Mahoning County would go to the Cleveland mob as overseen by Tony Del Santer. By the 1960s, the Mahoning Valley underworld was relatively quiet. The peace would not last long. Prado, a longtime Youngstown mob figure, was known as Briar Hill Jimmy after the neighborhood in which he grew up. For years, he was investigated for running the bug. He inherited leadership of the operation from his uncle, Dominic Malamo, one of the region's earliest mob leaders. Prado worked out of his Calamar Manor, a popular restaurant and event catering hall located near an Ohio Turnpike Interchange. His security guard just happened to be the local chief of police. In the 1970s, the Cleveland Mafia family gave control of the Youngstown vending and gambling rackets to Pittsburgh. In exchange, the Cleveland family received 25% of the profits from these ongoing operations. When Tony Del Sander died of natural causes in 1977, Ronnie Carabia assumed management of the Cleveland mob's interest in the Mahoning Valley. By that time, Ronnie Crabb, as he was known, had a full plate of problems. In the mid-1970s, a brash and stubborn Irish-American racketeer named Danny Green challenged the Cleveland Mafia for control. Mob soldiers loyal to James, Jack White Licavoli, failed in numerous attempts to eliminate the Irishman. Finally, in 1977, Green was killed by a car bomb in suburban Cleveland. Ronnie Carabia was one of several men charged, convicted, and imprisoned for the sensational mafia hit. The federal investigations and convictions that ensued would devastate the Cleveland mob hierarchy. In the Mahoning Valley, Charlie Carabia assumed his brother's responsibilities. His enforcer was Joe DeRose Jr. Both men were quick to solve problems with violence. Meanwhile, Joey Naples, had been released from a short prison sentence. 
He was the younger brother of Sandy and Billy Naples, both killed in the violence of the 1950s and 60s. Naples owned United Music, a vending machine company, and as a protege of Jimmy Prado, he assumed many of the duties of securing the Pittsburgh mob's interests. With Charlie Carabi on one side, Naples out of prison, and the Cleveland mob weakened by state convictions and new federal indictments stemming from the murder of Danny Green, the Youngstown region was again primed for conflict. The violence started in 1978 when Charles Spider Grisham humiliated a Carabia associate at gunpoint. In retaliation, Carabia ordered Grisham's death. Grisham was shot and killed by a sniper. As a leader, Charlie Carabia proved to be a loose cannon. He would reportedly get drunk and disparage the bosses of the Pittsburgh mob and even his own Cleveland outfit superiors. The instability continued, but as the body count ticked upward, the Pittsburgh leaders continued to cut in their Cleveland counterparts for a percentage of Youngstown's gambling and vending machine profits. Angelo Leonardo, the Cleveland underboss, met monthly with Jimmy Prado, his Lieutenant Joey Naples, or Pittsburgh underboss Kelly Manorino to pick up the Cleveland family's cut of the Youngstown profits. Profits averaged $5,000 or $6,000 monthly, and on at least one occasion, rose as high as $23,000. During several of these meetings, Prado and Naples complained about Charlie Carabia. They believed he was lying about the number of poker machines that he had around the city. As a result, they wanted permission to kill him. Leonardo and Cleveland Mafia boss James Licavoli were opposed because he was taking care of Ronnie Carabia's family while Ronnie was serving time for the murder of Danny Green. Leonardo said he would talk to Charlie Carabia and resolve the matter. In 1979, Naples associates James Peeps Canonico, Robert Fury, and John Jackie Tobin were killed. The prime suspect was Charlie Carabia's enforcer, Joey DeRose. Those men within the Mahoning Valley mob network scrambled to assess loyalties and choose between the Cleveland crew and the Pittsburgh faction. Meanwhile, former college quarterback and drug counselor James Trafkind decided to run for sheriff of Mahoning County. The Cleveland Mafia decided to buy him off so they could operate in his jurisdiction without law enforcement interference. They assigned Charlie Carabia to make the payoff. Jimmy Prado and Joey Naples wanted in on the bribe, so they gave Carabia an additional $60,000 to deliver to Trafficant. When they suspected Charlie of keeping the money, they sought permission again from the Cleveland bosses to kill Carabia. Licavoli and Leonardo told them that if he continued to cheat and embarrass them, then they could do what they want. 1980 was another blood-soaked year. Naples man John Magda was kidnapped, strangled to death, and dumped from a car. Carabia loyalist Robert DeServo was hit by a shotgun blast, fired through his living room window, and Dominic Senzarino, a cousin of the Carabias, was shot and killed by a gunman who sneaked in behind him when he pulled into his garage. In December 1980, Charlie Carabia went missing. His abandoned car was found on the east side of Cleveland. According to Leonardo, who later became a government witness, Carabia was murdered by order of Jimmy Prado after it was learned that he was planning to kill the Pittsburgh mob bosses. With Carabia gone, Joe DeRose was determined to eliminate Joey Naples 
and take control of all the Mahoning Valley's gambling and vending machine business. And he wasn't quiet about his intentions. By then, Joey Naples had a crew of gunmen on its payroll. Some of them provided security at his vending company office, while others drove around in a van trying to find Joey DeRose. In one attempt, DeRose and his girlfriend were injured by gunfire from a passing car. Then, in a tragic case of mistaken identity, Joe DeRose Sr. was shot to death while using his son's car. In April 1981, Joe DeRose went missing and was presumed dead. Prado stepped down as the local mob chieftain that year, and Joey Naples became the Pittsburgh overlord of the Mahoning Valley Rackets. The battles between the Cleveland and Pittsburgh mob factions were over. In August 1982, James Trafkin, who by then was Mahoning County Sheriff, was arrested by the FBI and charged with accepting bribes from organized crime figures and filing a false tax return for 1980. After agents played the tapes that Charlie Carabia had secretly made, Trafkin made a written confession. Later, in a surprise turn of events, he recanted the confession and pleaded not guilty. The case went to U.S. District Court in Cleveland with the sheriff representing himself. Trafkin denied signing a confession, and he argued that he accepted the $60,000 not as a bribe, but as part of a sting operation against the mob. During his closing argument, the feisty sheriff urged the jury to stand fast and support him, quote, like junkyard dogs in a hurricane, end quote. After four days of deliberations, they exonerated trafficant. They cited gaps in the tapes that could have been evidence of alteration. When the not guilty verdict was read, trafficant strode across the courtroom and shook hands with the jurors until the judge ordered him to stop. The following day, the acquitted sheriff returned to Youngstown to a welcome fit for a hero. There was a victory party and reception at a church. T-shirts adorned with the sheriff's portrait quickly sold out. After his acquittal of the bribery charge, an overwhelming majority re-elected James Trafkin as sheriff, but he set his sights higher. In 1984, his hero status among his constituents helped him unseat Republican incumbent Lyle Williams and get elected to the U.S. House. From day one on Capitol Hill, Trafficking stood out as a rogue. While most politicians wore expensive dark blue suits, he opted for casual sport coats, bell bottoms, and a loose tie. He was notable for his daily 60-second speeches before Congress. With arm-flailing cynicism, Trafficking pulled no punches about his incredulity over foreign policy and wealthy power brokers often in relation to his district's struggling economy. In mock disbelief over all affair Washington, he often ended his one-minute speeches with the phrase, Beam me up, from the Star Trek TV series. In 1987, Trafficant was summoned back to court. This time, he faced civil charges by the Internal Revenue Service. They alleged that he failed to pay taxes on the bribe money he received from Charlie Carabia. The congressman maintained that the money was accepted as campaign contributions and was thus non-taxable, but he failed to report the funds on campaign finance reports. Trafficant was confident, but his refusal to testify about the Carabia tapes may have cost him his case. The Internal Revenue Service moved quickly to collect the back taxes and penalties. Trafficant claimed his $96,000 salary as a congressman 
was decreased to less than that of a first-year school teacher. Quote, there's no doubt about it, Trafkin complained. Government has stepped on me pretty good, end quote. In 1987, Lenny Strollo was reportedly formally made into the Pittsburgh mob, as was Joey Naples. Strollo was given a significant portion of the Mahoning Valley rackets to oversee and was permitted to operate independently of Naples. Both men had their own sets of loyalists, and mistrust between the two factions began to fester. In 1990, Strollo was convicted of racketeering and bribing two police officers in connection with several gambling operations, including an elaborate casino called the All-American Club in Camel, a small city on Youngstown's eastern border. Strollo was sentenced to 14 months. He feared Joey Naples would take over his gambling operations when he went to prison. In the summer of 1991, Naples was surveying his mansion under construction. A sniper in a cornfield across the street fired several shots, and Naples fell dead. With him out of the way, Lenny Strollo became the Pittsburgh Mafia's representative in the Mahoning Valley and took control of gambling, vending, and drug rackets. Ernie Biandilla, a former Naples associate, had taken over Naples Vending Machine Company. Things were quiet for a few years. Then Biandillo placed poker machines in private clubs in Hillsville, Pennsylvania, an area considered Strollo territory. He also paid off politicians without informing Strollo. One morning in June 1996, Biandillo was driving to work when he was boxed in on a narrow street. Several gunmen approached his car and fired shotguns. Information provided to the FBI revealed that Strollo's friend and lieutenant, Bernard Bernie the Jew Altshuler, engineered the murder of Biandillo, and that four black drug dealers were paid $35,000 to carry out the hit. One of the hitmen pleaded guilty to a federal charge of committing murder to further a racketeering enterprise. The mafia was hands-off when it came to public officials, but there were exceptions. In 1996, Paul Gaines, Mahoning County's prosecutor-elect refused an offer to cooperate with the mob. On Christmas Eve, he was in his kitchen when he came face-to-face -face with an armed intruder. The man fired twice and Gaines went down. The wounds were serious, but not fatal. The gunman raised his pistol to finish the job, but the gun jammed and Gaines survived. The shocking attempted rub-out of a public official sparked a comprehensive FBI probe into organized crime and corruption in the Mahoning Valley. It would last four years. Numerous cases exposed wide-ranging relationships between criminals and public officials. Scores of mobsters, their associates, and former and current public officials were indicted. Ultimately, many took deals and agreed to testify against higher-ups. In 1997, Strollo was charged in a multi-count racketeering and murder indictment. In a surprise move, he also agreed to flip and work for the feds in exchange for a 12-year sentence. He implicated his right-hand man, Bernie Altshuler, and his crew in the hit on Ernie Biandillo. In total, there were over 70 convictions. It was one of the most successful federal attacks on organized crime outside of a big city, and the feds weren't finished. In 2000, they targeted Congressman James Trafficking in a federal corruption probe. 
The following year, he was indicted on 10 counts, including bribery, tax evasion, and racketeering. Once again, he pleaded not guilty and represented himself in federal court. Following a two-month trial, Trafkent was convicted on all counts. He was sentenced to eight years in prison. He was released in 2009 and died in a tractor accident on his farm in 2014. Lenny Strollo lived to be 90 years old. His death in 2021 was a reminder of the success that the FBI, federal prosecutors, and their associates had in disassembling the Youngstown Mafia machine. Paul Gaines served as Mahoning County prosecutor for 25 years. This presentation was written by Rick Perello, the author of several books about the Mafia. You can read more about him at his website, www.rickperello.com. That was an amazing podcast from an amazing podcast company. To watch with video, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash amazingpodcastcompany. For more, visit our website at www.amazingpodco.com. If you enjoyed the show, please click the like and subscribe buttons and share it with your friends. It goes a long way in helping us produce more amazing content.